0: most delightful discoveries of grief work is that when the heart becomes more fluid and mobile and flexible and responsive to the world, um, you get to take your place back in
1: life. That's psychotherapist, author, and soul activist, Francis Weller. This week's guest on episode 114 of the Unplugged podcast. Hello and welcome to another pivotal week of the Unplugged podcast, where we unplug from status quo and shift the paradigm from head to heart by igniting a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and activated world. And this is the audio space where you will hear powerful conversations with the courageous truth seekers and free thinkers of today's rapidly collapsing world. My name is Debo Zarco warrior of truth, cultural revolutionary, status quo crusher, and passionate lover of life here to welcome you to your bi-weekly dose of authentic expression, truth, critical thought, provoking words, and open-hearted inspiration from my paradigm-busting headquarters in beautiful British Columbia, Canada. And I am recording this introduction in the moments, the moments after Donald Trump was handed the presidential throne and pretty well given the nuclear codes for the most powerful country in the world. The monotonous status quo of the same old, same old, which would have been Hillary C., has been officially demolished and has been replaced by the one person who can single-handedly expedite the inevitable, meaning the collapse of our biosphere. The accelerated decay of mass consciousness made this choice a necessity. And ironically, I have been predicting a Trump win all along, as those who know me can attest. And this information came directly from an intuitive knowing that his presence, his profoundly present presence, is necessary for the completion of the story of separation and also to bring the madness of our destructive, consumptive culture to an end. Now, sadly, in bringing the madness of industrial civilization to an end, it means that life as we know it will also end. But you know, there's nothing new in that message because I've been speaking and writing about that for a while now. So here we are. The final act is about to begin. And what an appropriate end to an asinine and exhausting charade. The reality is that life in America, for anyone who gives a damn about the earth, for animals, for the natural world, it's only going to get worse. And we will all be impacted on a global scale. The, uh, the insane farce that we've all borne witness to has emphasized everything broken in our dilapidated cultural story. And in the process, an ugly shadowy giant has been aroused who will only increase in size and stature until he finally destroys himself. Now I'm speaking in metaphor as the, uh, the giant that I refer to is the flatlined collective consciousness that has descended on our broken world. So as the Citizenship and Immigration Canada website crashes from those who want to flee what they know their country will soon become, I can assure them that the Trump choice is one that will have massive ripple effects around the world. In other words, it's not going to make any difference where you live with a prevailing collective consciousness of arrogance, entitlement, and destruction because it's going to impact us all. Now we do have the power to choose how we respond to the uncertainty that befalls us. And more than ever, we need to connect more than ever. We need to grieve and we need to feel more than ever. We need to unleash our presence and our joy. And more than ever, we need to be present to and we need to connect to every sacred moment of life and this week's conversation is about just that now here's the ironic thing I I confess that I did not plan it this way however this week's conversation could not be more appropriately timed Francis Weller is this week's guest and he is a psychotherapist, writer, and soul activist whose work was first introduced to me by my dear friend and fellow earth activist, Betsy Rosenberg. And Betsy is someone that I've known since uh, the writing retreat that I went to in Carmel in 2013. She writes for the Huffington Post. She had her own radio show and she and I are... sisters in passion for this earth. And when she discovered the work that I've been doing for the last little while that is very um, deeply connected to grief and to feeling and to expressing our pain and our love for this earth, she saw the alignment in the work that Francis does and the work that I do, and she knew that with our respective aligned worldviews, we needed to connect. And of course, trusting Betsy, I knew that her hunch was probably bang on and sure enough it was. So when I explored Francis's website, I was immediately drawn to his calm and compassionate demeanor, which shines right through the videos on his website. I purchased his book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief and devoured it within days. It is so beautifully written. And I listened to podcasts that he'd done with my friend Carolyn Baker and I savored his poetic wisdom. So I was feeling like it was time to connect. So I finally reached out with an invitation to join me for a conversation about a topic that has been pivotal in my own personal transformation. And that topic is grief. And who better to explore the depths of the sacredness of grief than someone who has made it their life's work? Francis is a master of synthesizing diverse streams of thought from psychology, anthropology, mythology, alchemy, indigenous cultures, and poetic traditions. And the core of his work is creating pathways to reclaiming our indigenous soul, meaning the unforgotten wisdom that resides. In the heart of the psyche. Francis is also the founder and director of Wisdom Bridge, an organization that offers educational programs that seek to integrate the wisdom from traditional cultures with the insights and knowledge gathered from Western cultures. And if that's not enough, Francis also helped to create Men of Spirit, an intensive year-long initiation program designed to restore the masculine community as a resource for cultural renewal. I am so honored particularly with the timing that as I said wasn't planned but I'm so honored to bring this beautiful conversation to your hearts and minds this week. So please welcome the profound wisdom of Francis Weller as he reminds you of the transformative power of grief. Thank you so much, Francis, for your willingness to join me on this show. As I mentioned just a few moments ago, I've been following your work for a little while since my friend Betsy Rosenberg told me about your work. And I have such gratitude and appreciation for what you do. And after reading your book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, I knew that I had to connect with you. So here we are. And I'm really, really, really grateful and, and excited about this. So, um... I want to start by talking a little bit about what you wrote on your website. Like you write that you're a psychotherapist, a writer, and a soul activist. And when I read the words soul activist together, I, I they, there was a resonance there. And so I'm particularly interested in learning more about what you call soul activism. But before we we go there, I always love to share with listeners the essence of the people that i have the honor and privilege of speaking with so i'm curious to know about what makes you tick and how you got into such beautiful sacred work which is the grief work is especially in our culture of soul separation so why don't we just start with that you can you can tell us your little journey about, or maybe it wasn't a little journey, your journey into this work, and then we'll just take it from there.
0: Well, thanks for having me on, Deb. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I often get asked that question, and I say, Well, I never volunteered for the position. <laughs> it, um, I got drafted. Uh, in some ways, melancholy and grief have been with me my whole life. Um, And so it's not something that I went looking for or found interesting out in the world. It was always with me. It was like a a shadowy brother that uh, never strayed too far from my daily life. And I did everything that I was supposed to do as a good white male. Um, I tried to outrun it and try to, um, you know, transcend it through all kinds of positive thought and ideas and but it, uh, it never left me. And in my 30-plus years of being a psychotherapist, I, I clearly came to see that what I was dealing with wasn't so much depression, but oppression. Mm. The people were, were incredibly weighed down by oftentimes decades, lifetimes of untouched, unmetabolized sorrow. So I began working with grief in a much more direct way at that point. But it wasn't really until I began to under uh, explore ritual process to see that grief was also never a private thing and that it was always a communal process throughout our whole species history that I began to really understand the right context for grief work. And I tell almost all the people who come to see me in my practice that this is a good place to get started. This is a good place to begin to tolerate contacting grief and having someone be with you in that same moment. Because most of us go away. We go into our privacy. We go. We, we almost feel ashamed of our grief. So we go into hiding. Um, but I tell them that ultimately you'll need to do this work in a village setting. And when we finally do that, there's something profoundly uh, reparative about grieving side by side with other men and women, doing the same work at the same moment as you. It's like some old tear begins to be stitched back together again. The sutures are finally put in place. And we begin to actually step back in much more courageously and much more joyfully back into life. Um, So ironically, what I've discovered in my work with grief is uh, a pathway to delight and to uh, um, wonder and awe because our hearts are no longer being barricaded against sorrow. That's been one of the most delightful discoveries of grief work is that when the heart becomes more fluid and mobile and flexible and responsive to the world, um, you get to take your place back in life came across this, this line a couple of weeks ago by a Spanish poet from last century, and his name was Jaime Gil-Biedma. If I'm butchering that name, please forgive me. But he said, um, I thought all along I wanted to be a poet, but deep down I wanted to be a poem. Oh, Isn't that gorgeous?
1: That just sent a wave of goosebumps all over my body.
0: I just love that and that's what grief work does is it it helps us move from this static stuck, rigid posture back into being a verb again. We begin to become fluid again and we begin to feel like we are poetry, we are dance, we are a song, we are rhythm, we are pulse. We're not this stuck fixed piece of uh, identity anymore and that's that's part of the beauty of the work.
1: Hmm. And there's so much that you said that really resonates with me when you said that you tried to outrun it and it just, it was always there and it's been with you all of your life. I can relate so much to that as a child. I, I've always felt this profound connection to animals in the earth and I've never, as a child, I could never understand this, this separation that adults had between animals and the natural world, and then as I grew older, then I realized that the separation was with each other, and then with our very own selves, and that has caused immense grief throughout my life, and it led me on a natural path into activism. That was my way of of releasing or I thought it was, releasing the grief, but really what it was was just a way of projecting what was unhealed within me, what I wasn't allowing myself to fully feel. And it wasn't until I experienced a profound death in my own life, a very personal death with my mother, that I really started to explore the, the profound power and sacredness of grief and how transformative it is. And now I am a huge advocate for grief. And as I mentioned to you before I started recording, the people that I've met in my life, and they're rare, the people that I've met in my life who are unwilling to negate their, the, every aspect of their humanity, including their grief, those are the people that I feel the closest to that I have the most resonance with and that are also just really juice life. You know, there's a passion and there's a sense of purpose and a drive. And, uh, (sighs) the word that's coming to me is urgency, but it's not really urgency, not in a chaotic way, but there's like a, this, this joie de vivre, this, I guess it's an urgency to live fully now. And there's more presence as well. So, and, and as I see that, as I see these transformative, the transformative effects of grief in my own life, and I witness it in others, I realize the necessity of grieving in our world. And I look at what's happening, what's playing out on the world stage from, uh, social collapse to economic collapse, to ecosystem collapse. And what I see on a deeper level is that it's just like, it's, it's, to me, what it feels like is a projection of unhealed pain or oppressed pain, as you were talking about. And I'm just, I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts on that.
0: Well, it's part, part of our extreme delusional state that we feel somehow separate from the fabric of the world. And I think that when we are moving about the world whether it's seeing the roadkill on the way home every day um, or coming across a clear cut that I occasionally see up in the northern part of the state here or see another vineyard being put in at the expense of the uh, the oak savannas or the um, pathways for the raccoons and the deer and the fox and uh, I can say that well That's reminding me of my unhealed wounds, my own uh, uh, clear cut, so to speak. Mm. Or I could say, no, because of my intimacy with the world, I'm actually feeling the land grieving. I'm actually feeling the trees. I am the receptor site by which the sorrows of the world are going to be registered. That's why our work with grief is so essential. Because if I'm, if my heart is congested from my own sorrows or from my own oppressions, I won't be registering those those uh, signals from the land base, from the from the watershed, from the salmon. From everyone is crying right now, and if I'm not willing to register that, who's going to speak on their behalf? That's where soul activism is, is a good parallel with political activism or environmental activism. Soul activism goes towards those places of ritual and, and uh, imagination and brings um, community and beauty and those elements that are indigenous to soul into part of that process of responding to what's going on in the world. We have many, many environmental activists come to our retreats because they're burned out. They're exhausted. And typically they have no place to take the grief that they're feeling for what they're facing every day. And uh, so that's that's part of the maintenance practice. You can't really go out and do this work without having regular time at the grief shrine. You will, you will burn out. You will slowly turn bitter Um, I say that the part of the work of a mature human being is to carry grief in one hand and gratitude in the other, and to be stretched large by these two presences in our life. To pick up one or the other doesn't work. If I only pick up grief, eventually, I will probably begin to become cynical and bitter. If I only pick up gratitude, I'll have a certain naivete and a certain lack of depth of understanding and compassion for the suffering of others in the world. So we need both and together they form this, this prayer of life that in this, in the exact same moment of sorrow, I can witness a a, a maple tree ablaze and they're both true. They're both happening right now in this moment. And can I become that big, when i work with the cancer patients at the commonwealth cancer help program i often talk about that this is a time for them to become immense that they have to get their arms around despair and hopelessness and death and pain and sorrow and grief at the same time keep saying yes to their experiences of love and intimacy and belonging and their children and their friendships and their you know and their uh, creative creative lives we have to become immense. And that goes for all of us. we this time right now, we are really being called upon to become our, our biggest selves.
1: Yeah, I feel that too. And I I feel like what you're saying about how grief and ritual too is there's a primal connection that comes with the the ritual aspect of it and connecting with others. And I find that, you know, we live in uh, a pain phobic culture. It's like a grief phobic, pain phobic, death phobic culture, which is so bizarre to me. And we're taught to be lone wolves, to fend for ourselves and also to suppress our emotions that some emotions are okay and others aren't. And I'm curious, you know, because we're so, it's so deeply conditioned into us to be that way. And, uh, you know, not you and I, but when I say us, I'm talking about the collective species of humanity. How do you help people remember their emotional soul selves so that they can finally release the grief that holds them hostage to that constricted smallness that we witness on on a global scale now?
0: Part of how a soul works is that it brings... Um, symptoms to us. James Hillman says that soul gets to be known oftentimes through affliction, through depression, through anxiety, through addiction, through, you know, I, I often I wrote a piece once called um, The Necessity of Defeat, that no man has ever walked into my office voluntarily. They've come in because they've been defeated by divorce, by depression, by addiction, by loss of a job. Um, something has knocked them off that horse. And if they're lucky, if there's any grace involved at all, they will not try to find the horse again, they'll stay close to the ground. So most of us, myself included, I mean, like I was a well conditioned man. um, But it was pain, it was suffering that was poignant enough and pointed enough to crack some of my denial. And I got to the point where I had to—I really, literally had to turn and face it, or I would not be sitting here with you today. Um, so, psyche, and soul will find a way to exert pressure on us. And people come to the grief. I mean, when we first started offering these rituals in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, we had to convince people to come. I mean, why would I want to spend a weekend? crying <laughs> that doesn't sound like fun I mean there's football on TV and <laughs> Disneyland's got two-for-one this weekend uh, but now um, we have long waiting lists for people to come to our retreats and they're coming from all over the country all over the I mean, from Canada from uh, you know, from Maine from Massachusetts Georgia and, and that's wonderful that they're willing to travel 3,000 miles to come to a grief ritual, but that's also symptomatic. Mm. This is part of our grief, is that we don't have grief rituals in every town. When I was spending some time in my friend Maladoma's village in Africa, there was a grief ritual happening pretty much every single day, someplace. And I remember saying to one woman, you have so much joy. And her response immediately was, that's because I cry a lot wasn't because I shop a lot, you know, or I got, I got a lot of stuff or I keep myself busy. No, it was just the simple truth that there is this deep interconnection between sorrow and joy. And you said earlier about this conditioning, and I said, yeah, this is, the, this is our flatline culture. We've narrowed the range of our emotional life down to the barest possible range of what it is we're allowed to experience and to feel. And when we dropped out that lower register of grief, it collapsed the upper register of joy. And so now we rely upon excitement and stimulation as as really uh, poor substitutions for genuine joy. And you can never get enough excitement. You always want more. You want the next hit, the next high, the next uh, workshop. You want the next, uh, you know, bungee jump. You want the next stock market crash. You know, it's, it's, It's excitement just to know that we have a pulse. What we want is joy. What we want is to have some experience of the inescapable beauty of this world and to take delight in it and to participate in it and not simply watch it on the nature show.
1: One thing that I think that we are culturally conditioned to believe is that joy is the equivalent of happiness. Yeah. And so I'm curious to know your thoughts on our cultural addiction to being happy and how that, um, how happy is, is a fleeting state. Whereas joy, as far as I'm concerned, is it's like, um, it feels like a foundational state. It's a, it's a core, almost inner peace. There's And it's very level. It's very, uh, yeah, foundational really is the only way that I can describe it. And when you spoke about that story about how the woman is joyful because she cries so much, I can totally relate to that. I've spent, I've shed more tears where I live right now with the trees for what's happening to this earth than uh, than anybody I know, that's for sure. But at the same time, I feel really, really profoundly connected to love and to life. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on, on the, like I said, on our cultural addiction to being happy and how this affects our soul at the expense of joy.
0: it's a great question. Uh, Happiness, as you say, is fleeting. It's conditional. I know if everything's right, if everything's good. If everything's just lined up perfectly, then I have a moment of happiness, which I'm grateful for. It's, it's not a bad thing to be happy. Uh, but it is not a permanent state. And we begin to get this association that if I'm not happy, I'm doing something wrong. I'm failing at life. As if this happiness is supposed to be the permanent condition. I remember driving home from a conference once with a dear friend of mine, and Richard typically does these things. He asked me, "You know, Francis, are you happy?" And I paused for a moment. I thought, "Well, I'm more alive now than ever. I have moments of being happy, moments of sadness, moments of anger, moments of loneliness." So, Well what I want is to be alive. I've given up trying to be happy because every time I'm not, I thought I was doing something wrong. And what I want is to be alive. And every one of those emotions has vitality in them. And my job is to be a good host to whoever shows up. I felt like that was that's that was an answer that I really felt congruent with my with my body. Joy is. Um, It's kind of the essence of what it means to be open to all of that. Mm. When we pick and choose, we're at a great disharmony with our own life. Can Can you imagine having a joyful sorrow? Can you imagine having a joyful melancholy? Yeah, I can. I can. That to be open to life as it is occurring is quite a joyful thing doesn't equate that I'll feel good, doesn't equate that I'll feel happy, but there's something about saying yes to the terms of life, rather than trying to make the terms on my conditions, you know, uh, that almost leads us into a state of joy. What was the old phrase, the Buddhist phrase, the joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. And that's what's being asked of us to keep the heart open, because joy is a condition in a sense of the heart. It is that open-hearted, full-throated embrace of life. And we've all known people who have done that. Even if their life has been really hard, they still have this countenance to them that is quite joyous, at the same time carries a deep uh, sweet melancholy what the old Greeks would say was the bittersweet of life, right? That's, that's wise. That's, there's wisdom in that. This pursuit of happiness means that I become estranged to all the other states that come and treat them as unwelcome guests at the door. And the, 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 the work is one of becoming rounded and inclusive of all of them. And when we can really say yes to that, I think that does generate a quality of heartfulness um, that leads to joy.
1: Hmm. And you know what you said about how when we, uh, I can't remember your exact words, but how we, when we negate the rest of it, that sort of plays into what you said earlier about our flatlined culture. Yes. And, you know, on on that note, like we just live in a world that is, that has such a linear world, like it's a linear worldview that rationalizes and intellectualizes what is natural, organic and wild. And I know that you've used the words in your book wild for grief and boy, that really resonated with me because it's, (laughs) it cannot be tamed. But in our linear intellectual worldview, we think that we can place timelines on grief. We judge it. We judge it for its power, for how long it takes. Rather than what we're willing to allow, we think we can tame it with a thinking mind or run away from it, like you mentioned. Uh, and then we see this the, the, I mean, we see a culture now that is addicted to pharmaceuticals or alcohol or other recreational drugs. And yet, as you and I both have been speaking about, the grief or the pain just continually finds ways to remind us that it's still there, whether it's through depression or anxiety or addiction or illness or heart disease, which I find really ironic. And there's, I mean, it just plays out in a multiple of ways. So on this, on this train of thought, I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts about the the wild untamable nature of grief and how in that, in its wildness, in its feral quality, it can shape us as not only as emotionally mature adults, there seems to be far and few of those on this planet these days, Uh, especially in your country, in the political realm. (laughs)
0: Don't remind me. I I have no idea who who you're talking about,
1: Also, so there's, so it can shape us as emotionally mature adults, but also it gives us a a capacity for a deeper connection to our own core essence, as well as the essence of the earth, which I, I feel like such a profound connection to the earth, especially more than ever now and how we need to express the grief, not only for the state of Um, Our world and our planet and our personal losses, but also for our own souls
0: Well, you again a wonderful question because we place an enormous emphasis on control We want to stay in control. We want to be in control whether that's of nature our own bodies women's bodies we want to control everything our emotional lives but life is far too rambunctious and untamable for us to have such a, a delusional fantasy that we could do that. So part of the, again, the values of grief is that um, it is untamable. It is, for me, what I call, it is a form of protest. It's the way the soul protests domestication, homogenization, conformity, all of those very intense processes that that kind of befall us to live within a very narrow range of what is approvable in the culture. If you step outside that you are shamed, you are belittled, you are ostracized, you are exiled. So this is is a a process in the psyche that um, attempts to really shatter that domestication because when you are in the midst of grief, you were on your knees. You were out of control. You are being taken into the wild edge of sorrow, you know, as my book title says, because it's that's exactly what happened.
1: Yeah, there are times when I have literally felt crazy.
0: Yeah. Well it's it's very difficult to see it um mirrored any place so that I could begin to trust that what was happening was actually the most sane thing that could happen. You know, but because of the lack of any images and, and this uh, circumspect control around our emotional lives, when we go to those wild edges, we feel crazy. Mm-hmm. But in fact, we are in our most sane place. We are in the place that is totally, I mean, when someone's in the depth of grief, there are no questions to ask. I don't have to say, well, so what are you feeling right now? It's <laughs> true. You, Can you tell me what you're feeling right now? (laughs) There's not a whole lot of question. And the way to uh, sanity, I think, is regular visits into that place. And to begin, part of it, I think, too, goes back to fear. Hmm. I I can't tell you the number of times in my practice that I've heard people say, look, if if you take me into that grief room, I'm never coming back. And I often say to them, well, if you don't go in that grief room, you're never coming back. As part of our aliveness is, is trapped inside of that room. Uh, that's the compromise we make to stay disconnected from grief is to live a much more shallower life and take very very shallow breaths. So Mary Oliver line, are you only breathing a little and calling it a life? Hmm. No, and that's part of what happens when we when we absorb so much sorrow over a lifetime, we can barely take a deep breath. And as you mentioned, the number one cause of death in this culture is congestive heart failure. And it isn't plaque, it's it's the congestion in our hearts. It's literally what it is that is caught. We, we are dying from broken hearts. Now I can't even remember what your question was, but... Uh
1: I don't either. But you know what, you're going on a beautiful path. And it's, (laughs) it's kind of bringing me to another train of thought here where uh, I'm wondering about your thoughts on the fine line between uh, I'm just going to try and find the right language for it. I guess I'll call it active grieving. So the motion that you said, grief is a verb. So we'll use that. So active grieving grief is a verb. And taking grief on as an identity like i find that there's a line there so when people become trapped in a perpetual state of inertia and despair rather than expanding expanding into that more expansive self that comes with the movement of grief so what are your thoughts on on that line between the inertia and the the verb of grief
0: well i would say the inertia is symptomatic
1: um
0: In other words, if I'm lacking the conditions under which I can actually engage the grief, most likely it will congest and it will stay stuck. And it does then become, it settles on us like uh, sediment and begins to weigh us down and it becomes an identity. It's not like I chose to do that. It's that... um, All of the messages and the absence of communal rights by which we could actively touch this sorrow are missing by and large. And again, why are people traveling 3000 miles Mm -hmm. to do this? To get a fresh breath of air, you know, and to feel like they're being held within a large enough container. Very, very, very few of us have that container offered to us. Even one-on-one therapy as good as that is, it is not big enough. It is not a large enough holding space. There's not enough side-by-side experience of grieving together that could signal to the psyche, it is time. We were wired over thousands and thousands of years, generation upon generation, to do this collectively, to do this together. And suddenly, in the last split second, of a culture's life. We've been told to do this alone. And psyche is not stupid. Psyche is quite intelligent. And so it knows that the conditions are not ripe right for me to touch this sorrow. And people oftentimes feel either, you know, guilty or wrong for carrying this around for so long, or, uh, or they're terrified of it. And I say, Let's hold compassion for that situation because how many times have you been offered this setting? Well, none. okay. I mean even if you're raised in families that had funerals and stuff, even the funerals have become anemic. We, we really can't even cry there openly. Uh, I mean, there are exceptions. I think the uh, African American churches oftentimes have a very uh, boisterous, invitation to grieve openly, and to wail and to mourn. And uh, that's what we need. You know, so that's this kind of state of being caught in the identity is the symptomatic condition, when the full uh, bodied process of communal grieving is absent. It's almost like we're sentencing people to that condition. Rather than providing what they need. Because once they get it, I guarantee you, I've seen it thousands of times. People who've never done a ritual in their life somehow felt the need to come to this thing. And by the end of it, they are dancing. And they have space in their chest that they haven't felt for decades. So
1: you're creating, what you're creating is a very safe, and sacred space for the expression of what is real essentially within us in an unreal flatlined culture where it's not safe really for us to express our essence and sorry uh, yeah you you i I remember reading something in your book about conscious grieving, and this to me sounds like very conscious grieving. And actually on, on that train of thought, maybe you can explain what conscious grieving is. And, and also since we're on the topic of grief ritual, I'd be curious to, to just understand a little bit more about what your rituals are like, since you're the one who's right in them and you can come like from a, a purely experiential perspective, how, what transformative I was going to say epiphanies but it's probably bigger than that but what transformations you've actually witnessed if there's any that really stand out
0: I could tell you so many stories
1: (laughs) this could be a three hour podcast yeah I could
0: tell you (laughs) so many stories of people carrying the most difficult burdens of sorrow particularly the death of their their children um, coming in broken hearted and not being able to speak because the grief is so dense from this, you know, I'm thinking of one couple. But ritual is the oldest language we speak as human beings. They estimate, archeologists, anthropologists, that we have been doing ritual longer than we've been speaking. It's a language older than words. It's the primary means by which humans keep knitting the tears that life invariably brings to us. Some of these tears are severe, like finding your child dead in the morning. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking of this young couple, and they're going through the work over the weekend of writing and sharing and writing and sharing and moving through the the course of the weekend. And then we come to the ritual on Sunday. We're building up, it's what I call composting. We're composting for two days to turn over our very tight control and slowly soften the ground so that what's underneath can begin to percolate up and th- and be expressed fully on sunday it takes time to soften the ground so this remember this this couple would go down to the shrine i'll, I'll tell i'll describe the, the the ritual in a moment but they you go down to the shrine as often as you want and the shrine is built by us over the course of the weekend and it's beautiful there's all these photographs of ancestors and animals and trees and and then we have greenery and flowers and cloths and candles and it's stunning and you go down to the shrine um, side by side with other grievers and they went back and forth back and forth back and forth just sobbing and sobbing for their child the last time they went up there they went up as a couple and she stood up after a while and turned around and she was beaming yeah And then he stood up, turned around, and he was beaming. And they had finally had a large enough space to express their sorrow and come back into a a new relationship to their child that wasn't just blanketed with sorrow, but they could remember him now with joy and love and gratitude and that doesn't mean that their sadness is gone by any stretch of the imagination. But what ritual does is it's a strong enough process by which we can go down into the most elemental pieces of our being and find ways to move it. We can't do that just talking about it. We can't do it just by, you know, mulling it over or thinking about it. It requires this type of transmutive process um, that we've been doing several hundred thousand years. And it has the capacity to really shift what the mind can't make sense of. In Maladoma's village, they have a word, Yilbangura. And the word means the things that knowledge cannot eat. You can't think your way through grief. You can't make sense. You
1: can't sense of it. even think when in grief. <laughs>
0: yeah. So and we're desperate to try to figure out what this is all about. How do I how do I take care of this? How do resolve this? But you have to actually enter into the body of it. But that requires a, a larger body. There's like I wrote in the book, there's two things required to to work with grief. One is containment and one is release. But when I'm sentenced to do it all by myself, I can't do both jobs simultaneously. So I become a permanent containment field for grief. I mean, you ever notice we're oftentimes recycling the same sorrows over and over and over again? That's in part because we're waiting for the signal that the container has been provided. Now I only have this other job to do, which is to release it. Mm. We're not meant to be a permanent containment field for grief. It's not meant to be that way. In many indigenous cultures, they consider, consider grief a toxin. And now even scientists measured teardrops, that the only tears that carry toxins out of the body are grief tears. Yeah. So tears, tears of joy, onion tears, laughter tears, that's just saline. But when we are grieving, we're having a cleansing cry. That's why we feel different after grieving, after truly allowing ourselves to weep and weep so that the bottoms of our toes feel like we've touched them with our sorrow. We feel different after we come back from that wild ride.
1: And it is a wild ride, that's for sure. It is a wild ride, yeah. And one thing that I've noticed about grief is that, uh, and I think we've, we touched on this at the very beginning, is that it doesn't really ever go away. It shapeshifts, though. It, sh- it has a way of shapeshifting. That's, that's the word that's coming to me right now. And it's morphed in different ways that just... Uh, really, it, grief has always been the gateway for love and for life and for truth for me and (laughs) by being so willing to face it head on and embrace it and allow it into my life and to just take me out and make me crazy or whatever happy you know whatever it whatever it's going to do this time I always feel as I allow it to move and that's the key is that movement I, I always feel a deeper connection to life and to gratitude, like you mentioned earlier, for the sacredness of life. It's just so powerful. And I, uh, I am such a huge advocate for grieving and people are are always so surprised at me. Like, you know, they, they like, you feel so much pain for the world, the way you write, there's so much pain. And I said, that's because I love this book planet so deeply. And when they're with me, they they kind of sometimes expect me to be, uh, a bummer, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm anything, but I love to dance. I love to laugh. I love to sing and I love to grieve. And I think that that's just like embracing the fullness of our humanity, the full plethora of the emotional spectrum is what really, uh, brings us back to more of a state of wholeness. And I'm not saying that I'm there yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm on, I'm on the path. And so I'm curious to know your thoughts about how grief also has the potential to bring us back to a state of wholeness.
0: I often call grief a threshold emotion. And it's one of those states that if we choose not to cross that threshold, our lives diminish and become thin and uh, shallow, pocked by uh, meaningless activities and, and and pursuing of secondary satisfactions like prestige, wealth, rank, privilege, um, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is. But if we can cross that threshold, we are brought into uh, an, an encounter with the whole uh, myriad of emotional and possible encounters with the world. Uh, I mention a quote in the book by Paul Shepard, whom I highly recommend people read. Um, he died about in the mid nineties, but a brilliant, brilliant thinker. He said, the grief and sense of loss That we often attribute to a failure in our personality is actually an emptiness where a beautiful and strange other should have been encountered. Mm. That sentence just floored me. The grief and sense of loss that we often attribute to a failure in our personality. He was smart enough to know we often blame ourselves for this state we're in. He said, it's actually in an emptiness where a beautiful and strange otherness should have been encountered. Now, he was talking primarily about the otherness of the fox or the deer or the the heron or the turtle or the redwood or whatever. That otherness should have been encountered in order for us to feel alive, but we should also encounter it in each other's eyes. And when we do not metabolize sorrow, what we see in the other eyes a state of deadness and a state of uh, resignation and, and a, and a qualifi- qualitative despair. So that that uh, beautiful and strange otherness grows very dim when we do not uh, choose to really work that ground of grief actively. The other thing that you said, uh, Deb, is that You know, it doesn't disappear. It uh, changes shape, as you say, Uh, but it also becomes a constant companion. You know, uh, that's part of this what I call the apprenticeship of sorrow. Is we want to be done with grief. You know, we want you know when grief comes, because it will come. We can't wait till the door is closed and we're done. (laughs) But but the reality—that's an illusion. (laughs) Yes. The reality is, because of those five gates of grief that I mentioned, every day, there will be some encounter with grief. And if I'm ill-prepared to work with it, see, grief is not just an emotion, it's a skill. It's a capacity, it's a human faculty that we have forgotten and neglected. So once we become uh, skillful at it, we're not trying to outrun it, duck and cover, we actually have it right here. It's, it's standing right beside me. It is a constant companion. It's someone I know intimately well, and doesn't frighten me. You know, he's he's just there with me, and um, as as well as my other companion of gratitude. You know, they're they're right there. That's who I walk with. So it doesn't need to go away. It doesn't need to finish. Um, But we do need to come into right relationship with it. We tend to have this kind of binary position with grief. We're either pushing it away or we're drowning in it. And neither one of those helps us. We want to be able to come into right relationship to sorrow so that we can be in conversation with it. We can walk with it. We can dance with it. We can write it. We can draw it. We can share it with friends. We're in a constant conversation with it. Not too far away and not drowning. Neither one of those will help us. We end, we end up then, it's what I call grief grieving grief when we're drowning in it. And there's no one here really to witness it, to process it, to work with it. It's just, I'm just, just drowning. Make sense?
1: Oh, totally makes sense. You know, and I feel like this is actually a really good place to segue into a conversation that I'm really curious to explore with you. In reading your book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, I have to, I, I'm going to publicly compliment you right now. It is so beautifully written, Francis. Like it, It's poetic. It was, I was reading it again last night to prepare a few questions for this, this conversation. We're not going to call it interview, but this conversation. And I was just it's I, when I read it the first time, I was so moved by the book, and then reading it a second time, uh, I get it I get something more out of it. I was in a different place reading it, and it's just so beautifully, powerfully written. it I'm not reading it with my eyes and my head. I feel like I'm reading it with my heart. Mm. So I want to I, I just want to thank you for writing it because I'm very grateful for the book deeply touched by that Deb.
0: Thank and
1: you. I, i'm just going to read a small section here that i pulled out that is that plays into where i want to go next and you wrote for the last several centuries we have envisioned a split between our inner lives and the surrounding world psyche however is not confined to the deep interior of our lives it overlaps with the wider world and perhaps in these times is most evident in the sorrows and suffering of the earth itself. Our personal experiences of loss and suffering are now bound inextricably with dying coral reefs, melting polar caps, the silencing of languages, the collapse of democracy and the fading of civilization. The personal and the planetary are inseparable as is our healing. And when I read that, uh, I, I burst into tears. It was, it's so that is such a profound statement for where I personally am at right now. And I have been all of my life, but I think because I've done so much grief work myself and I've been so willing to go into these places and spaces that are, that culturally are negated. I feel a deeper connection to the earth and what's playing out on a planetary stage right now. So with the world imploding at an accelerating pace from our social systems to our culture, to our biosphere, I'm really, really, uh, I'm very eager to talk to you about what I call Gaia grief and how it's manifesting in all of us, whether we know it consciously or unconsciously and how you, um, what you would say to to listeners about navigating this planetary collapse that is so painful for those of us who love the earth and to, and to just stay, I don't know, I guess how to, yeah, I guess how to navigate it, how to live with this, this very dire reality that we're now all living through. It's a a biggie. Hey, I'm a griever, so I go deep.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've done many rituals for for the earth, earth grief rituals. And I would say at least half of the people who now come to the ritual weekends are coming not because of their own losses. They're coming because of the condition of the planet. They're there because the sorrows of the world are impinging on them to such a degree that they don't know what to do about it anymore. They can't deny it. See, this is part of the other side of it is that I think um, grief might be our salvation. It might be through the broken heart that we come to love the world again. And that our denial seems to be breaking that the sorrows of the world are are, are becoming so loud that they're even droning on our headsets and our, you know, and our, you know, our, our entertainment systems. It's crashing into our psyches. The soul of the world is what we're talking about. You know, we talk about our, our soul a lot. I, at least I do. And that's what I, that's why I wrote the book was to try to put soul back into grief work and grief back into soul work. But uh, the soul of the world is touching all of us right now through her suffering and through her lamentation, whether it's through the coral reefs or ice caps, or I tell the story in the book how after the Gulf Coast oil spill happened, that I would wake up in the middle of the night crying, hearing the sounds of the dolphins and the shorebirds, and Uh, crying that they were suffering so much when I was 2,000 miles away and yet it was immediately in my psyche. And part of what we realize now is that um, we are not separate, right? I mean, that's, that's part of the power of this moment is the illusion of separation is just being shattered. That all of this grief is coming into my body and it's asking something of me. Not just to feel it, but to be quickened by it, to be deepened by it, to be ripened by it. This is the time of which, from which grief shapes us into elders. Whatever happens in the generations to come, it will require men and women who are capable of metabolizing this and staying present to life. If we go into shelters, if we go into our own withdrawal to try to cope with the conditions the streets stay cold, the forest is destroyed. The deep work, and I end the book with this idea of becoming ancestors, the deep work that's being asked of us through the sorrows of the planet is for us to become as potentiated as possible as elders, to show up with for our youth who are just in great, uh, disarray and despair. I mean, uh, just two days ago, I got a message that one of my old students up in Washington had committed suicide. Mm. You know, and this rips at my heart um, when these 20 and 30 year olds and teenagers are, are leaving because they don't feel held by anybody. And their grief is so huge for what they're seeing happen to this home that they're supposed to inhabit that they don't know what to do. And if you and I don't show up as elders to show them what's possible and how to digest this material, they're they're hopeless. They feel hopeless. So to answer the unanswerable question that you're asking me, um, the work right now is really one of deep ripening to become men and women who carry gravitas. Into the into the streets and into our communities and into our grocery stores and into our you know uh, government and um, we need people who are not afraid of sorrow. I'm really happy to meet you, Deb. Just for that sake of finding another soul who says, "I'm willing. I'm gonna I'm gonna stand here and the winds are fierce. You know the storm is big." But I think what also is being asked of us right now is that we come together you know, and do not do this alone anymore. The heroic fantasy is dying. This fiction of individualism at the expense of community, at the expense of planet, it's dying and it has to. It was meant to be a, a, a short phase in our life and it's become this lifetime obsession with staying, you know, dominant, staying in control, uh, always rising, and always, you know, GDP has to keep going up. Otherwise, you know, oh my God, panic sets in. And, uh, we're t- we're being asked to go down right now, down into soil, down into soul, down into the places where you know everything meets the bone and find one another again and to, and to get on our knees and, and weep together and give thanks together and do the slow reparative work of cleaning up a watershed, um, helping the salmon come back, uh, stopping fracking and bringing the prairie dogs back and the buffalo back. and Whatever you can do in your locale. Soul also is very wedded to place. You know, doesn't like abstraction. It, it It's grief, as you said beautifully before, and it's absolutely true. Grief is all about love. If I love small, my grief will be small. Phew, what a relief. But that means I have to close my heart. And if I'm going to love big, if I'm going to love big. and I'm going to love the particulars of my watershed, my dug furs that are here and the, and the maples and the madrone and and the dying tan oaks that break my heart. And uh, what can I do here? And that comes through a heart that's been enlivened and quickened through the grace of grief.
1: You know, uh, earlier before we started recording, I mentioned to you that I live by the ocean and I've been living here for the last three years and I'm moving into the mountains uh, just this weekend. And This has been, it's been completely intuitively guided to move into the mountains and away from the ocean. And I've had, uh, it's just, I can't even articulate the heartbreak that I've experienced living by the ocean and witnessing the collapse of the oceans just in the three years that I've been here, knowing that it was, it was happening long before I came, but it's just been, it's been a stark reality experiencing it firsthand when I'm out on the kayak or when I'm out canoeing with my partner and the dogs and seeing the fewer starfish, fewer seals, watching the starfish just waste away to nothing. And this year, this is really shocking. You mentioned the salmon is I live right, right next to a provincial park. That's a salmon spawning ground under normal circumstances, or I should say under natural circumstances. And by now, the streams and the ocean would be bubbling with salmon and there's nothing nothing <laughs> like nothing not even a sign of life nothing and we're also not not only is there not salmon but there's no bears there's no eagles it's just uh it's it's creepy it's it's desolate and and so the calling to go to the mountains has been intuitively guided. And so I feel there's a part of me, my, my intellect is, well, no, I need to stay by the ocean and bear witness. I need to be a voice for the ocean. And then the deeper guidance inside is saying, no, you need, there's too much pain by the ocean that it's distracting you from what you need to do. You need to be a voice from the, for the ocean, but you need to do it in a way you need to do it somewhere where you can still uh, not be so distracted by your despair that you can speak from a place that is not so filled with pain and anger. There's a lot of anger that comes with it. And you mentioned, uh, you know, this, this person who took his life and last year, last summer here on the coast, which is a small community, I think in an 80 kilometer space, I think that's about 60 miles, ish uh there is maybe 30,000 people and one of the key significant members of our community was 23 years old and he took his life last summer because he as an ocean activist he could not deal with the pain of what's playing out in this world and so i i look at uh The millennial generation and what they're going through and also the emails that I get from I have a wide range of ages who listen to this podcast and I am primarily recently been getting emails from millennials who are really suffering with the state of the world and I wish I had answers for them but I feel like I'm so grateful to meet you too, because I feel like it's conversations like this that help them realize that A, they're not alone and B, it's okay to feel and C, seek out community.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. It will crush you. It will crush us to try to carry this alone. No amount amount of distraction will ever be enough to... Really fend off what's happening, but this has to be done in some some semblance of a, of a, of a community. You know that's that's an absolute necessity. And it doesn't have to be large. You can you know invite three or four friends over to your house, and just to say tonight we're going to talk about sorrow. Let's just not go towards advice giving yeah. and fix.
1: Fixing and advice and opinions, yeah, that that sh- safety is shot out the window then.
0: <laughs> sorrow is not a problem to be solved. It's something that's ne- in need of deep witnessing so that it can continue to move. The most difficult thing is, w- is when sorrow gets stuck. As you said before, this kind of uh, what was your term. You said when people get stuck in it.
1: Inertia.
0: Inertia it wants to move you know it wants to be expressed expressed you know it's not meant like i said before not meant to be carried around in our bodies it's meant to keep moving um, which keeps us alive and responsive to the world that's really key for our times
1: you know i remember when i first looked at your website when was it last year year and a half ago, you've got a little video, a little YouTube video down in the lower left corner. And I, I watched that video and there was so much wisdom that you, you shared with, with those of us who are brave enough to watch that video, which is a beautiful video. You were talking about, uh, I think it was at a men's conference and I looked through your website and I I noticed that you do, you do specific work with men and I, I'm really curious to talk about this because I know that our culture, well, it it, condi- it conditions emotional expression out of all of us, regardless of gender, but I particularly men. So what is it like working with men and this deep conditioning that holds men hostage to a very, very thin range of emotion. How does the grieving um, help them reclaim more of who they are? And I'm I'm also curious to know what it's like to to break through those barriers. Because what you're doing is such sacred work, regardless of gender. But I feel particularly excited to know that you're working with men because of the cultural conditioning that is so toxic to your gender
0: the men of spirit process is a year-long encounter with um, what we think a man needs to be able to carry in order to show for his community when we started this program in 1997 we put out a flyer that said um, if you're looking for personal growth don't bother Uh, we don't care But if you're you're concerned about the generations to come, show up. And they did and they began. And we put this all in the context. Initiation was never meant for the individual. It's not a personal growth adventure. You do initiation for the sake thereof. You go through these ordeals and it's hard work. This is a tough year for these men you go through very difficult rituals and very difficult soul work for the sake of the village for the sake of your community not for your own advancement you know this is not a uh, something to put on your resume your cv this is you're doing this because we call it the making of ordinary men because too many of us are caught in the addiction to specialness look at me look at me look at me Meanwhile, our streets are cold, and kids, as you as we we're just talking about, the youth are feeling abandoned. And the ordinary man, who has gone through initiation, shows up for the village. It's ordinary to show up for your children. It's ordinary to assist and to help. We have men now going to um, uh, retirement villages to sing to the people. We have men who are serving as coaches and soccer coaches and men who um, are now we have a lot of men here in Sonoma County who are part of the restorative justice movement. These men are now going in and sitting on these councils with these juvenile, uh, typically young boys who have, who have committed crimes, and rather than going through punishment cycles they're going through this process of restorative justice. And these men who have gone through initiation now sitting with these young men and saying, what are you gonna do? What choices will you make in your life to show up? So we begin the work um, by talking about reverence for life, including their own, because their own life has oftentimes been filled with shame and filled with worthlessness and the moment you're you're carrying that story you you're reaching out to affix yourself to anything that can prove your adequacy in the world and you don't care what it costs your soul or other culture uh, so you'll grab onto anything so we work with what we call the predator at that point you know that energy that will stand between you and crossing the threshold into your adult life there's no free pass across, that gate. It is an ordeal. And you're basically confronting, in many mythologies, you're confronting the energies of death. And you have to face that, you have to get across that. If you do not, which 99% of our culture has not done, all of the questions are geared towards, am I good enough? Do I? Am I lovable? Am I smart enough? It becomes a self obsessing cosmology. And very few people over here asking the broader questions of how are the salmon doing? How are the children? What is the condition of the village? These questions are not being asked by enough people because we're still over here wondering if my hair looked good today. You know, did I smell right? and why, Am I driving the nice enough car? And because it's all based on this, on this wound around belonging. So we try to settle that right after the beginning. On the very first weekend, we deal with that And once you begin to see how much you've compromised your life to fit in, grief comes. How shallow a life I've accommodated to in order to fit into a culture that does not know how to serve life. And so a man must know how to grieve. And so we teach them how to grieve. Then we teach them how to carry their wounds without being identified with their wounds. We teach them what the nature of their medicine looks like so that they can bring their gifts to the world. We teach them how to live in this beautiful tension between love and power, because either one of them alone is not enough. Love without power is sentimentality. Power without love is coercion and force, but love with power, that's compassion. And power with love is justice, is protection. They feed each other, they nourish each other. Then after we've done that for the majority of the year, to put them through a very intense uh, five-day ordeal ritual, to cook them, to take them into sacred contact with the five major elements of air, I mean, of nature, mineral, uh, water, fire, and earth, to have some type of sacred communion with those elements, to know that that's what they're actually serving. At that foundation, that's what they're serving. If they serve those things well, the community be, will, will be well if they serve those things well the ecosystems will be, will be well so that's what they've become devoted to that's their that's their new uh, dedication um, and so far we have i think 13 or 14 clans of men up and down the coast from Seattle down to Santa Barbara who have done that work and there's more happening so
1: oh that's just it's so, it's so beautiful. And it goes back to what I said earlier. It's just such sacred work and so, so beautiful because it just, I hear you speak and it just sounds, it sounds real in this world of illusion. What you are speaking of is the only thing that's real. And You know, and also what you're saying too, I mean, it just sounds like it doesn't really matter what gender we are because the same stories play out for, for both of us, men or women.
0: Yeah. And all the, all the in-betweens. Yeah. All all of those, that was part, you know, that's part of what happened up in North is that this person was one of those in-betweens It didn't fit in and was not accepted and, uh, carried a lot of grief and a lot of rage and, um, We have to become big as a a people and hold immense things right now. We cannot be adolescent, we cannot be children. That time is gone. This is the time where we need big-shouldered adults who can carry a lot of weight and lift heavy things and do good works with one another. It's a sacred time.
1: That is a beautiful place to end (laughs) wow thank you so much for your wisdom and your time and just your willingness to do this beautiful work i'm grateful to have you in the world i'm grateful to have you in my life now and i'm grateful to be able to offer this conversation to listeners thank you
0: thank you oh that's so These conversations are always a reflection of where the interviewer has gone and we went, we did good and in great part because of the work that you've done and this is not just a curiosity show about this interesting topic of grief.
1: And that was the beautiful wisdom of Francis Weller, who speaks from the soul to the soul. And you can find the show notes for this episode at debozarco.com backslash 114. And that's where you will find links to Francis's website, as well as to his powerful book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, which I personally, highly, highly, highly recommend. And if this show is meaningful for you, there are many ways that you can show your gratitude. You can head over to iTunes or Stitcher or any other podcast catcher and rate this show with a short review, or you could take your support one step further with a monthly pledge at patreon.com backslash podcast. That's patreon.com. So p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com backslash podcast. And my gratitude for your support as a listener is infinite. And that ends yet another Unplugged Podcast. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads can no longer make sense of it all. Thank you for listening. I am grateful for your listenership Every single time I release a podcast. And your support means everything to me. And remember, more than ever, more than ever, live with passion, live with purpose, change the world.